Please uh, come in, grab a seat so we can get started. Before we begin, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our faithful Father in heaven, we're so thankful to be here this week, to have opportunities like this to gather, to look into your word, to study the things that are relevant to our lives, to our local churches, to the body of Christ that bring you honor and glory. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we would discuss this topic this afternoon, that your spirit would lead and inspire and stir up so that we can be changed by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a bit of, uh, bit of background. I'm still getting some questions on, hey, I thought this was marked for him. So um, just want to explain a little bit. Uh, this topic was actually prepared by Brother Alan Jarveen from Toronto. And Brother Alan, probably a couple of years ago or so, was having a discussion with a brother about how, you know, with the times that we live in, in, in this world that we live in, it's so critical that the church is relevant to the society today. And as, as another brother overheard this conversation, he said, hey, you know, that would be a a great topic for one of our upcoming uh, OMEC meetings. OMEC is the uh, Ontario Ministers and Elders Conference. We meet a couple times a year, uh, the Ontario Ministers and Elders, and have different topics and uh, discussions. So uh, that finally came to be this past September. Uh, Brother Allen presented this, this topic, and uh, I found it personally very uh, profound. And I know we in Windsor uh, subsequently invited Brother Allen to come and present the topic in our church, and I know some of the other churches have... Uh, have as well, and, and maybe after this, hopefully, uh, he'll get some more invitations to, to come and present this topic. So, um, Brother Allen thought, because uh, Brother Mark Igich, this is where the, the connection comes into play, uh, was in the midst of uh, preparing a booklet, um, it's called a City Set on a Hill, uh, discussing the role of the church um, on behalf of the, uh, the Communications Committee. Um, incidentally, that booklet is now uh, published, um, it looks like this, and there will be copies available um, just outside the dining room as you go in uh, at lunchtime or dinner time. So please do pick up a copy, study it, and, and meditate uh, upon it. So um, Brother Allen had thought to kind of uh, combine efforts. There, there are some similar themes and, and similar, uh, similar vein of, of, uh, of topics uh, in both. Um, and about that time, as that was about to get underway, uh, Brother Allen, unfortunately, was not able to make it to camp and uh, called me and asked me to, uh, to fill in. So um, due to the sake of time, uh, we didn't have the top uh, the opportunity to specifically uh, work together, Brother Mark and I, to combine. But as he did uh, share a current copy of his draft, I was uh, moved at how the Lord was already doing this, and and so many of the same uh, themes. You know, uh, Lord was working through these brothers to uh, capture. So that's uh, that was very moving and uh, and stirring for me uh, particularly. So. Uh, with no further ado, we'll, we'll get into the topic, the relevance of the church. So as we look at the word relevant and talk about relevance, we can break it down into three basic components. Is the church important to the matter at hand? Is the church connected with the matter at hand? And is the church bearing upon the matter at hand? And we're actually going to leave this topic now for a significant portion of our forum um, because we're going to spend some time laying the basis and, and creating a foundation upon which we can really consider these questions and answer them. So laying the basis upon which to consider the answer, we're going to spend some time first talking about the role and purpose and, and mission of the church. 
in light of Scripture, what does the Bible say about the role of the church and my role in the church? After we partially exhaust that, we're going to spend some time talking about this battle between unity and individualism, including our misconceptions of individualism. And after kind of laying that groundwork, we can come back and in the, in the right light, ask ourselves the question, is the church relevant? So in the Bible, there are several analogies um, given for the relationship between Christ and the church. And, and these four here are, are some of the, the more common or, or more well-known. Uh, Christ the bridegroom, the church the bride. Christ the head, the church the body. Christ the vine, the church the branches. And Christ the shepherd, the church the sheep. So these analogies give the clear picture that the church is subject to Christ, connected to Christ, and dependent on Christ. There is this connection to Christ and this dependency on Christ that is both implicit and explicit in the Scripture. And for our discussion here, we're going to be focusing on the highlighted one, Christ the head, the church the body. So some key verses that we're going to use to, to create the foundation and, and study this. Um, and I'm going to actually read through these quickly. You can see it's a little bit faint here, but the ones highlighted in blue are the more impactful verses that we're going to spend some time focusing on. So Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Very wordy verse. We're going to spend some time on it. In Ephesians 1, 22, 23, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him, that is Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So to, to just kind of study at least those, those couple verses, verse 12 and verse 16 in Ephesians 4, um, there's gathered here just a, just a snippet of some other translation, just to leave no doubt as to what these verses are saying. So for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, it's King James. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. For the perfecting of the saints, unto the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. To equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. For the training of the saints in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. For the training of the saints as servants in the church for the building up of the body of Christ. Unto the perfecting of the saints for a work of ministration for building up of the body of Christ. So we've run through those very, very quickly, but I hope you get the, the understanding that there's a, there's a common theme that regardless of which translation you read, there's a very clear message being given there. And what is the point? Let's start with Ephesians 4.12. We are all called to be servants in the church in some capacity or another for the purpose of edifying, building up the body of Christ. 
Every one of us is called to be a servant in the church, to serve the church, to edify it and build up the body of Christ. And regardless of what Bible translation or version you read, this is unmistakable. Very, very clear. Ephesians 4.12 tells us that every member is to be a servant and the church is to equip every member to be a servant, to serve the church and to build up the body of Christ. The sole purpose of your and my existence in the body of Christ is to be a servant, is to serve. If you've ever wondered, why am I here? Why did God place me here? Why am I in this church? There's one reason, to serve, to serve the church. Ephesians 4.16, this verse is a, a little more difficult, but we'll go through this. From whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So what are the verses in Ephesians 4.12 and 4.16 saying? Here are some facts. Fact one, God through Jesus Christ, the head of the body, has equipped the body with members or parts that are joined or connected to each other at joints. That's what it means when, when we read, for example, in Colossians 2, when it says knit together. It means to be joined or connected. Connected to each other at joints, forming a tightly fitting, well-held assemblage of parts. Fact number two, the blessings of God flow through Christ, the head, to every member of the body via these joints. Fact number three, every joint, therefore, is critical and special. Every part has to be working properly for the transfer of blessings via the joints to be effective. And fact number five, serving one another in love is how the blessings via these joints are transferred. These are unmistakable facts about what these verses are saying. Some thoughts. Each one of us, by virtue of our relationship with God, receives a special blessing. There is no mistaking the fact that all of us, by virtue of our relationship with God, has a very special blessing. But this is not the complete picture. This is not the total design of God. There is an additional special blessing that God intended and designed that we get through interaction with one another. The complete picture is that God designed or intended an assembly of members or parts to receive a special blessing, and I'll get to the, the uh, model or diagram in a minute, through the interaction with one another. Our interaction, our, our relationship with God, the head, with Christ the head, cannot be viewed as independent of our relationship with one another. Think about that. Our relationship with Christ the head cannot be viewed as independent from our relationship with one another. The purpose of the blessing that comes from interaction is for the whole assembly of parts to increase its capacity to serve and edify itself. 
The whole purpose is for the whole assembly to increase its capacity to serve and edify itself, and for the whole assembly of parts to reach the fullness of the body of Christ, like we read in Ephesians 4.13, till we all come in the unity of the faith, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These verses are saying that through our interaction one with another, the church grows in its capacity to serve and edify itself. Think about that responsibility. So let's look at this model very quickly here. So um, very simple, the rectangles are the, are the parts or, or members. Um, the arrows that was referenced earlier are the blessings that flow at these joints through our interaction one with another. And these hatch regions here that you show are the contact surfaces. That's the, that's the potential frictional surfaces as we interact and as we relate to one another. And at these joints, the parts are subject to loads, stresses, and inherent material weaknesses, susceptibilities, and vulnerabilities. So let's, let's translate that into our human physiology. You know, we're, we're, we're fragile people. We're sensitive people. We all have boundaries. We all have personal space. And there's times that through our interaction one with another, that, that space gets invaded, gets violated. We get hurt. We get offended. We get upset. We have, a, we have a hard time sometimes with our interactions, don't we? The challenge, it says on the bottom, is we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're earthen vessels. We're fragile. And so love is needed, especially when some parts are not working properly or some parts may be out of joint. I'd like you to just for a moment project yourself into that model and think about your past or current experiences, how that could be true for you. Fullness of God, Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And 2.9, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the brightness or radiance of God's glory, the exact expression or image or imprint of God's nature, His essence, His substance. The Godhead, comprised of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has been transferred to Christ the Head. And His fullness has been given to the church to experience through our interaction. The fullness of God is given to the church to experience through Christ. The fullness of the Godhead, of which Christ is the very image, is given to you and me to experience by interaction. What is the consequence then when I don't interact, when I withdraw myself, when I isolate myself? Continuing on, Galatians 5.13, For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. 1 John 3.16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Our end goal is to reach the fullness of Christ, which is God's love in its fullness. Our end goal is God's love in fullness, in full action, in the body and in every member. Does that seem too, too lofty to stretch for? Does it seem like an impossible goal? 
The requirement, 2 Corinthians 4, 10, and 11, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And Luke 9, 23, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The fullness of God is given to the church through Christ to experience. God wants us to be like Him. We are created in His image and in His likeness. Given to the church through Christ to experience the nature of God, His love, that we in turn may exercise love, service, and edification one to another, laying down our lives for one another. And this goal cannot be attained without denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. We have to be prepared to be like the rabbi and die like him. Think about what that means to always bear about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That means in my life, in all my actions, in my words, in my every day, the dying of the Lord Jesus is evident in my life. Brother shared how in the synagogue in the Jewish village, there would come a time that the rabbi would select an apprentice Someone to be a a, a pupil under him, to take on the apprenticeship. And there would come a time that the rabbi would come up to a young man in the synagogue and, and tap him on the shoulder and say, follow me. And that man at that point would be confronted with a decision. Would he be willing to set aside all his aspirations, all that he had hoped for in life, everything that he had he had a desire to do and fulfill and accomplish, and follow the rabbi? was not follow the rabbi somewhere and then return. It was a life decision. He would now go and spend time with the rabbi. He would live live with the rabbi and become like the rabbi. That was what was done. And everybody knew the significance when Jesus came and tapped the fisherman on the shoulder and said, follow me. They called him the rabbi. And when the Bible says that they left their nets and followed him, That doesn't mean that they were coming back later in the evening to put their stuff away and clean up for the next day. They left their nets. They weren't coming back. They were going to follow the rabbi, to spend time with the rabbi, to become like the rabbi. Our rabbi died for us. And our God is asking us to become like our rabbi. Romans 12.1, this is our reasonable service. Because of what our rabbi did for us, because Christ died for us, It's logical or rational that we follow him, that we live like him, that we become like him. The purpose of the church, and and some of the scriptures behind some of these we've already covered in the previous verses. I'm just going to run through these. To worship God and ultimately glorify him. To be the setting in which a believer has both the opportunity and the responsibility to serve other believers in love. To be the setting in which believers receive a special blessing by interacting with one another. To be the setting wherein believers are edified and grow both individually and collectively. To be a light to the world. You know, we we talked about a city set on a hill. The Bible says a city set on a hill cannot be hid. And we don't take a candle and and put it under something, but you put it up on a candlestick and put it up in the room so that its light can, can spread. Jesus said, let your light so shine, or in that way, to let our lights shine. To share the love of God with the world and thereby address the human condition. 
Great commission reference there in those, in those verses. Beyond the imperative, John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John 15, 12, and 17, this is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, sorry, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Unlike the other imperatives Jesus gave where he said, go and do or, or do this, we're commanded to love one another. And this cannot be done outside of the context of the church, of a church, of your church. I hope everyone gets the very clear picture that without God's love evident in my church, without a vibrant love that's visible and seen between the members and working within the body, we cannot, we will not be effective at sharing the gospel with the lost. The most effective programs and, and, and lessons and, and preaching and outreaches and ministries my church ha- might have are useless if the love of God is not evident between us. Think of, of 1 Corinthians 15. Though I have the tongue of men and angels, though I can, though I can, can deliver a, a, a profound and moving sermon, though I bestow all my goods to, to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, I sacrifice my life. If I have not love, it's useless. It's nothing. It profits me nothing. Okay, we're going to move into the, this uh, idea of, of individualism and how it, how it contradicts and, and, and works against unity. We're going to talk about this pro- progression of leaving one's first love. Hyperferneo, that's uh, uh, thinking about oneself higher than he ought to think, is a reference in Romans 12.3. We'll talk about that. To, to not holding the head, as referenced in Colossians 2. So if you think about Christ's message to the church in Ephesus that we read about in Revelations 2, he said, I, I know thy works, thy labor, thy, thy patience. I know you, you couldn't bear them that are evil. I know you've, you've tried those that said they were apostles and, and, and were not. You've, you've borne and not fainted. But he said, I have somewhat against you because you've left your first love. This church had all the appearance of, of being faithful in, in, in many things. From the outside, they looked, they looked solid, but they had left their first love. A believer can have all the appearance of a Christian, but God knows his heart. The Ephesians, though, though their works on the outside would suggest otherwise, though, though if you would observe them or though the appearance w- would suggest otherwise, they left their first love. And it's interesting to note that they're They were the recipients of the Apostle Paul's letter that we we read some of those impactful verses from earlier. And when a believer leaves his first love, he or she becomes vulnerable. So what do I mean by that? Romans 12.3, I'll read it very quickly. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. To think of oneself more highly than he ought to think. That's the Greek word hyperphroneo. A believer can have an inflated opinion of himself, thinks more highly of himself than he ought to. Hyper means above, and phroneo means to, to think about yourself. To think about yourself above. Believer can lose the perspective that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. 
that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He or she can lose the perspective that, that who, or I can lose the perspective that who I am and what I do in the context of the church is given to me. I don't choose it. It's not me who decides what I'm going to do in the church. It's given to us. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory or boast as if thou hadst not received it? And we're going to talk more about this. This believer can forget that it was God who set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased Him. And this believer can fail to be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring or giving preference to the other, to my brother my sister. That's this inflated opinion of oneself, thinking of myself more highly than I ought to think, losing the perspective. This is the mindset that is in opposition to unity. And this is not unity for the sake of unity. It's not conformity. It's not that we, we look the same and, and dress the same and drive the same cars and live in the same homes. This is the unity of the mind of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11, the Apostle Paul talks about many of these gifts and concludes that, that section of Scripture in, in verse 11. He says, But all these worketh that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. The Spirit is making the decision to distribute these gifts, not me. I don't choose my gift. We don't get to choose our gift. It's given by the Spirit as He will. A little bit earlier in that same passage, there's an there's a even more profound statement. In verse 7 it says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. What does that mean? What is that, what is that saying? I'm sorry. Can you just click that for me, Brother Stacy? It's up here on the piano. Sorry. I'm sorry. So what does that mean when it says the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all? What is Paul saying? The crux of the matter is that when the Spirit of God chooses to manifest or reveal Himself in a believer's life by a specific gift, it is for the profit of all. It profits everyone. It's for the common good. That's what to profit with all means. My gift is not for me to benefit. My gift, whatever it is, whether it's something visible, that scene, or it's, it's, it's behind the scenes and not noticed, whatever my gift is, whatever your gift is, it's not for you and I to profit. It's for the common good. Remember, our place in the church is to be a servant, to serve the church so that the church the body can be edified and be built up. This is not about me. It's for the common good. So we can help each other. Whatever my gift is, it's not for my benefit. It's for the church. Ephesians 3.17-19 That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Colossians 2.2 2, That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together, we talked about that, joined or connected, knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ. Our ability to experience the riches that comes with a full understanding of God 
our ability to experience the riches that comes from a mature, deep, spiritual understanding of God is contingent upon our ability to be united in love one with another. That really is incredible. God has placed a prerequisite on knowing Him fully. And that prerequisite is that you and I are united with our brother and sister. That's a prerequisite to know God fully. I cannot grow in the knowledge of God if I'm not united. Now I'd like you to again think about the consequence or, or the tragedy if I become disconnected, if I become disunited with my brother and sister in my church. I want to make very clear that when I, when I say church, I make no distinction between the universal church, body of Christ, and, and my local church, or the local body. None. Because there's no scriptural basis to do so. I, I shared with Brother Mark the other night, it was a, when we had the National Brothers Meeting in, in uh, Windsor this past uh, April, Brother Mark shared some, some thoughts um, from, the, from the, the booklet he was preparing. And that, that statement struck me very profound that he said, we, we speak of the universal church so reverently and so, so glowingly and, and with the awe that it deserves. And yet, when I talk about my local congregation, I don't speak about it the same way. My local congregation, that's a part of that same universal body that deserves the same reverence the same awe, that I view it in the same way that my local church, my local body, I need to know God fully, to appreciate Him fully, to receive the total sphere of blessings that He has intended for me as His child. In other words, if we're not united in love, we are not going to achieve a full understanding of God. John 17, 11, and 21 through 23 gets a little bit deeper now in this thought. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Let that sink in. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. God wants us to become complete in unity. That's what it means when it says that they may be made perfect in one. God wants us to be complete in unity as He is in the Godhead. That's very humbling when you think about that. Project yourself again into the model that we looked at of the, of the rectangles and the frictional surfaces in your, own, in your own church. Are you, am I, complete in unity in the same way that Christ is in the Godhead? That was what He prayed. That was what He prayed for the disciples that He was going to leave behind. He prayed to the Father that they would be one even as we, this is Christ talking to the Father, are one. Or in the same way that we are one. And we could spend a lot of time talking about how Christ was in one with His Heavenly Father. 
This speaks to the triune nature of God, the very essence of unity that God has in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that He wants to replicate in the church. And again, I make no distinction between church and, and, and local church. Oneness, to be one with the Godhead, requires oneness with the body, the church. We cannot do this without the church. Colossians 2.4 and 18-19 through 19, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. And picking up in the second half of verse 18, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. So this is the consequence. So this is the consequence of leaving my first love, developing this, this inflated opinion of myself or thinking of myself more highly than I ought to think, getting caught up in the, in the world's view of, of self-determination and, and not, not God's view of self-abandonment, come to the point of not holding the head, losing the perspective of the head from which all the body is joined together and receives its, its nourishment. When we're not united in love, we open ourselves up to deception. We're influenced by persuasive words, words that sound good. They sound true. They sound right. But they're not. They're deception. You see the, 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 the spiral that starts to happen in someone's life. Influenced by deception. When we choose to sever the link with the body, when I disconnect myself from my church, when I isolate myself, when I look at my church differently as I, as I look at the church or body of Christ at large, as, as I think of it in, in biblical terms, I open myself up to deception. Those that do become deceived become vainly, as we read in Colossians 2.18, become vainly puffed up by our fleshly mind. means inflated without cause by an unspiritual mind. Lost the head. They know it better. I feel like I've got this figured out. I don't, I don't need any more of the influence or input from my, from my church or those around me or, or those who would otherwise be my, my counselors. I've got it. I figured this out. You know, I, I, I feel like I've become enlightened at this point. I may have some understanding, but, but it, it's not spiritual-based. There's no wisdom in it. It's deception. Their newfound wisdom is unsubstantiated. The conclusion is that a person like this has lost connection with the head. And Paul completes the full circle here. This person has lost connection with the head. Now we start to understand how, how like those we read about in, in, in Matthew 7, that there were those who... Who, who felt that they knew the Lord, but he didn't know them. Lost connection with the head. 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. Someone who disregards the fact that they have been placed in the body according to the way it pleased God. Someone who disregards the fact that they are being equipped to serve or minister to believers for the edification or building up of the body. Someone who disregards the fact that the Spirit of God has given them a gift for the benefit of all the body, not themselves, but for the benefit of all the body, is proud, knows nothing, arrogant. That's the sense. 
I think I have some knowledge. I'm enlightened. I've got this figured out. I don't know anything. I'm proud. It says, consenting not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was, it, it was the Lord who commanded us to love. It was Jesus who commanded us to, to, to be one with one another, just like He is with the Father and the Spirit and the Godhead. Something very dangerous. Very serious. And something I need to continually check within myself. We all need to check within ourselves. Hope we see the, the, the very slippery slope, this progression of leaving our first love, developing this, this inflated opinion of myself, thinking more highly of myself than I ought to think, to losing connection with the head, not holding the head. I think we're doing okay on time here. So, we've, we've spent the majority of our time here laying the basis upon which we should look at this question. Making sure we look at the, the question in the right light, which we're now going to revisit. So with the groundwork laid, we can again discuss, is the church important to the matter at hand? Is the church connected with the matter at hand? Does the church bear upon the matter at hand? And pause just for a moment and think about how you would answer this question. Think about what examples you would give from your own observations or your own experiences in your church that you would use to substantiate your answer. Is the church important to, connected with, and bearing upon the matter at hand? And we'll talk about what the matter at hand is. The matter of hand is not the current set of issues and struggles and challenges my church is facing. That is but a distraction. That is but a cunning and subtle distraction from the one who hates us. He would love for us to spend our time on those things. You know, the, the, the church throughout the ages has always had its challenges and its, and its issues and its struggles. That is not the matter at hand. The matter at hand is the human condition. The church must preach and, and, and teach and counsel to address the human condition. That is what the matter at hand is. We can't ever be misled into thinking that the matter at hand is, is, is the issue of the day, the struggle our church might be going through. The matter at hand has always been the human condition. Important to, is the church important enough to address the need? And does what the church offers address the need? Is it clear and unmistakable in its message? Connected with, is the church indifferent to the matter at hand? And does my life suggest indifference to the matter at hand, the human condition? If you would observe me and watch what I do, how I spend my, my, my spare time, what I do for leisure, where I go, what absorbs me, would it suggest indifference to the matter at hand? Would it suggest that I'm insensitive to the matter at hand? Bearing upon, is the church impactful? Does it have an effect? You know, and this is a difficult one because... If we would look for ourselves, am I being impactful? Is, is the church impactful? You know, so, so often we, we, we can't see these things. You know, we don't, we don't know. We can, we can try to look and see, are the, are the, are the lost finding the Lord? Are, are people responding to, to our efforts to address the human condition? We would struggle even to quantify what would be, what would be success. And I would suggest that that's less important because we know that when we model what God asks us to model in our love one for another, in our churches, in my individual life, how I walk as a believer, 
that it will be impactful. And we may not see it. It might be sometime years, years down the road that somebody heard some message. Maybe somebody observed me going through a difficult situation and, and, and saw how I responded and it, and it spoke to them. Maybe louder than, than, than something else ever did. We know that when we follow this biblical model, we can be impactful. Are the lives of individual believers representative of a life that is being shaped and molded to fulfill a godly purpose? Is my life an example of a work in progress towards total conformance to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Do people see that in us? If somebody comes in your church or in my church, do they see that? If somebody would come into my home, do they see that? That my life is a work in progress, continuing to, to grow and be built up till we all come in the unity of the faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We relate to the human condition when we share with our fellow man the common struggles of humanity. You know, we, we all share some common struggles and concerns. Health, putting food on the table, family. These are things that, that regardless of what, what, what culture you live in, these are common things that society as a whole shares as, as, as struggles, concerns. We've all had various struggles with, the, with those things, some, some very, very recently, as, as was shared. Does my life suggest indifference to those things? Am I moved at those things? Are believers sidestepping a path that allows them to relate to their fellow man while at the same time offering the world another perspective, trusting God? You know, we, we live a life that's victorious over sin. And if that's evident in my life, that's a powerful witness. But we all, all of God's children, go through struggles. We all have times of difficulty. We all have times where we go through something painful and hard. So often it's in those times, by our action and reaction and how we go through that difficulty, and what what shapes us and what carries us through that situation that is a, a golden opportunity to address the human condition through faith. Sometimes no words need to be spoken. Just how I, I go through a situation, how I deal with a trial, how I come through it or not is a powerful way we can address the human condition through faith. <clears throat> so, we seek for financial security. How much time is devoted to this pursuit? Saving away for a rainy day. Shelling away for, for uh, retirement. <coughs> Excuse me. How much time do I put towards those things? And how does my pursuit of those things affect my choices in life? And the decisions I make. I'm not suggesting there's, a, there's anything wrong with having an having a, a emergency fund with, with, with retirement. That's not my intent. But we have to, the world will tell us that it's important to, to be successful, to reach a certain level, to be comfortable, to, to, to achieve a certain social status. And all these lies, deception, are we caught up in that? How much does that affect me and the way I live? How much does that affect my mindset? how I am at work. If I strive so much for financial independence, does that ultimately not get me to this pride of life condition? We seek to improve our health. Does improving our health extend beyond a moderate level of exercise activity to personal beautification, self-glorification, and self-adoration? 
And again, my intent is not to pick on someone who, who exercises or jogs or, or whatever. But these things can get out of hand. You know, the Apostle Paul said, said to Timothy, bodily exercise profited little. You know, you could think of that in a, in a, in a couple ways, but it's, it's, it's small. The benefits of keeping this, this physical shell that's been basically decaying for some time and will continue to decay is small. Little value. He said, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. That's where you're better off spending your time. That's where there's value. That's where there's something lasting in it. We had a brother recently, uh, uh, recently became, a, became a, a, a brother and converted and, and, and shared his testimony how he, he went through a, a, a period of time and, and he was, a, he was a, a smaller man and maybe was, was uh, picked on a little bit. I'm, I'm, I don't remember the exact story. Picked on a little bit when he was in school, but he went through a period of, of time where he, he just sunk himself, like he spent hours at the gym and he was all these protein shakes and energy drinks, and he, he, he spent hours there, and it, it became an idol for him. And, and he became huge. This small guy became huge, and he was, he, he was muscular, and it, 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 it fed into his mind, and, and, and he felt powerful. If I pursue self-beautification, self-glorification, is that not ultimately the lust of the flesh condition? We see comforts and distractions to improve or balance some of the hardships in life. You know, we've all gone through periods of time where we, we, we work hard. Maybe we feel we're under-recognized, maybe underpaid for the efforts we're putting in at our work or our job. Just sometimes we feel that, that, that we deserve some, some things because of that. Do we think we maybe uh, deserve to, to spend some time in distractions, whatever they might be, or in leisures? Again, the world here will fill our mind with all these things that we should do to spend our time. And, and, and we, we're in this world. We, we can see all around us how people spend their spare time. Just, just look at how, how people who, who have no mind of, of, of God or no, no care that there's a God spend time outside of, of, of work. How do they spend their spare time? What do they do with their time? Do you ever feel, hey, that would be neat. That would be a great way to spend my time. And again, each of us can analyze this for ourselves, what these distractions are. But these things can become absorbing. They can become habit-forming. Some, some can, can be outright sinful in and of themselves, but even, even, if, even if they may not be inherently, they can become so if they start to absorb my time. The lust of the eyes. How much do we embrace these things and these philosophies? This is the, this is the self-determination model. This is, this is individualism. This is the lie that the devil gives us that says, go pursue those things. Have, have pleasure. Seek the praise of men. How much do we embrace them? God wants us to be like the rabbi. These fishermen and, and, and tax collectors went after the rabbi. He, he, had no, he said, I have no place to lay my head. They went. They wanted to become like the rabbi. Do we? Question, are believers seeking to overcome the human condition by self-determination? Sorry. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And up in the left you can see the days are not just evil. They're insidiously deceptive. The days are not simply evil. They're insidiously deceptive. That means that their deception is in a gradual, 
unnoticed, slow way. It, it, it reminds me of, of, uh, of, of Genesis 3 that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field in a crafty way, just subtly and slowly taking us down a path you don't even realize. It's the, it's the boiling frog. It's, it's just slowly walking down this path. Before you know it, I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. The days are insidiously deceptive. The brother here likes models. You can, you can probably tell, uh, tell by now. So, so okay. highlighted here, if, if I'm seeking this path, you know, there's, there's two choices. There's, there's two basic choices to address the human condition. One is the path that the world would have me go down, the path of self-determination. It's the one that says, you can do this, be your own person, make your own choices, carve your own path in life. The other is the path of self-abandonment. It's following the rabbi. It's when the rabbi taps you on the shoulder and says, follow me. And you leave your nets. You leave everything. Everything you aspire to do, all your plans for life. You put those aside and you follow the rabbi. The process in the, in the self-determination model is what we read about in 1 John 2.16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the outcome, I hope we understand, is clear. It's eternal death. The path of self-determination leads to eternal death. The path of self-abandonment, the process is growing unto the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. It's that model that we read about that, that makes me look at my church and my brother and sister differently. You know, I thought, we just heard recently how the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. The brother shared in the testimony last night. And the second like unto it. In other words, the second is related. It's inseparable. We love our neighbors ourself. And the Lord was talking about those who, who we weren't minded to be neighborly toward. How much more so our brother and sister, joint heirs with Christ. The outcome of that process and that path is eternal life. And the agent for the the self-determination path is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. And the agent that works on the path of following the rabbi, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Two parallel streams, two models, two processes, two agents, two outcomes. Last model. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first read this and then, and then uh, I'll uh, explain what's meant by this model here. So the individual factor. We are all our own person with distinct characteristics and personalities. This leads to the potential for both dilution as well as enhancement of the positives or towards more spirituality or conversely the negatives towards worldliness. Consequently, with every level of interaction from believer to believer's family to closest circle of believing friends, Dilution and enhancement work together as opposing phenomena to formulate, shape, and define the character and culture of the local fellowship. So let me just just quickly explain. So here, along the bottom, we have each individual believer. One, dot, dot, I, dot, dot, all the way through believer N. That believer has impact immediately on his family. And and we'll talk about this on on a subsequent slide, particularly those who, who are the priest of the home or the head of the home, you have influence on your family. Yes, every, every child is created different, every person is unique, but you, there's, a, there's a sphere of influence in your own immediate family. Each family then has a closest circle of believing friends. And you see there's drawn here, sometimes we have overlap. This is within, think of this within your local, local fellowship. 
then we have some overlap and some friends in common. And so, so the, this idea of, of dilution and enhancement is, is this. As, as I move up in each level of interaction, the influence within that group can either be positive, can either dilute the negative and enhance the positives, or at times can dilute the positives and enhance the negatives. So think about that. And it, it's important to note, you know, this all, this all starts right here. It starts with me and, and, and the model that I ensue. When believers toggle back and forth between self-determination and self-abandonment, that's the two paths we looked at, by the law of interaction and the effects of dilution and enhancement, the church loses all three factors of its relevance. Important to, connected with, bearing upon with respect to the matter at hand. So when we toggle back and forth between the path of self-determination, my will and what I want to do and how I want to blaze my own trail, and the path of self-abandonment that says I leave all that and I follow the rabbi to become like the rabbi, when we toggle back and forth, we lose our relevance. We're living in insidiously deceptive times. The greatest opportunity to affect change is at the individual member level. We have to assess the spiritual condition and with God's help work to restore the model of self-abandonment. Think about this. Like all of us to think about when we, when we leave here, which model am I following? What path am I on? Am I living a life of abandonment? Self-abandonment? Am I following the rabbi? Am I spending time with the rabbi so that I can become like the rabbi? Again, particularly for those individuals with head of the home or priest of the home roles, a clear understanding of the self-abandonment model in the Scripture is crucial to the positive upward interaction as we move up from believer to believer's family to closest circle of believing friends. So, I didn't tell you this ahead of time, but in many ways this question is, is, is actually open-ended. But I hope that we've, we've um, been able to look at it in the right light by, by looking through Scripture, seeing what my place is in the church, what the role is of the church, and what, what part I play in that, to be able to ask ourselves this question and to be able to see what the Bible says we can do to be more relevant. We ask ourselves again, is the church important to the matter at hand? Is it connected with the matter at hand? And does it bear upon the matter at hand? The answer lies with me, my family, and my closest circle of believing friends. Because together and by the model we ensue or, or, or we unwittingly pursue if we're, if we're unknowingly or, or, or without awareness following this path of self-determination, we define the local fellowship and ultimately our witness to the world. That's our concluding slot. We have just a few minutes, I think, if anyone has any questions or, or comments. Anybody? Brother Avram and Brother Dave. Just speak in the microphone, please. Are, are separate believers say, fit into each one of those three slots? Is, are believers more pushing for, or they, all believers fit together, fulfill all three? In, you mean into one of these three? Yeah, I'm just saying, like, a believer will be more for, say, important to, while the other believer will be more for bearing okay. upon. Good, good, good uh, question. The, the, um, the comment is more for the, the relevance of the church, the church at large, and what my role is or, or what my, my place is, is in it. If, 
you know, we, we covered a lot of things to, to talk about the individual and what my role is, how, how it's the spirit that decides what my role is, what my gift is, what, what part I'll play, that it's God who decides, you know, he, he's put me in the body as it has pleased him. Um, and and it, it's a, we could spend hours talking about this analogy of the body. It really is, it really is incredible. We could spend a lot of time uh, talking about it. But thank, good, good question, Brother Dave. Uh, Brother Allen, I believe that everyone in this room uh, desires that others come to Christ, our family, our co-workers, our friends. And you had the slide up there earlier uh, of John 17, 23. That's what's at risk here. And there it is, verse 17. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. This is what's at risk, that we work together, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3.9, that we love one another, that we do all that we learned here Mm -hmm. this morning. Because what's at risk is that the world then will not know that God has sent the Son. Mm -hmm. And that is imperative, that we work together and convey that message, and that they will then learn and internalize that message that God sent the Son for me personally and that he loved me as I have loved them. Mm -hmm. That's what's at risk here, loved ones. And if we all internalize this and understand this fully, we will all realize self-abandonment and practice it and not ever entertain individualism (coughs) at any of our churches. Thank you for sharing, uh, Brother Joe, and then uh, Brother Mickey will be the last comment. Just, you know, it's, it's clear that one of the roles of the church is to outreach, you know, particularly the ones that, that are, are very dear to us. But the Bible makes clear that despite our best efforts, despite our most coordinated efforts to outreach, if we're lacking love, one, we, we, we won't be properly identified as the disciples of Jesus, and, and it's useless. It profits nothing. Joe. So I'm just trying to bring this into something useful in my mind, right? I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, if the church, the church is the body of Christ, that was one of the examples. And if I take it to be my body, and let's say the matter at hand is, I'm just looking at your bottle of water. If, if the matter at hand is, I want to move that bottle of water. No, no, leave it alone. Okay. If that matter at hand is for you then, okay, you're looking at that bottle of water, and you're thirsty. Okay, so here's the need. You're thirsty. There's a part of your body that's thirsty. But without the body, how can that be quenched, right? Well, you need other parts of the body. You need your spine. You need your arms. You need your feet. You need your hips. You need your mind to kind of rotate it, move it all down, coordinate it. And so this question, is the church relevant? We can take it and say, is the body relevant to satisfy a thirst? And the individual would say, you know, the, the individual thirst might say, oh, no, I can do it myself. Go ahead. Try. No, I can't, right? So I think the, the, the statement, is the church relevant? Is the body relevant to the matter at hand? Yes, it is. Do we really see it in that very clear passage? I think a lot of times we don't. And I think that's our problem. Because, excuse me. Because we don't see how all these other members work a lot of times we feel that we're operating on our own. 
But in reality, Christ the head is orchestrating the body to fulfill the need of soul salvation. So, <clears throat> so I hate to be the last question because this is kind of a big question. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I'm going to ask the question that's probably on a lot of our, on our minds with this, this topic, the relevance of the church. We, so many people have had such a great desire to bring others to Christ that sometimes we feel that with the winds of change in society that there must be a way to make the message more palatable for a newer generation. And I guess my question is, when we talk about the relevance of the church, the question is, at what point is making the message more palatable compromising the message itself? Sorry, in advance. 